If Ron can wear a hat up here, I can wear a scarf. You know. <laughs> this is a this is a Jordanian kufea head covering scarf. I often wear it over the head. It really it's out of the Bedouin culture of Jordan. That's really all Jordan was for a long time. A country of Bedouin nomadic people. City of Amman was about two thousand had about two thousand souls a hundred years ago. Now it's right at two million. So it's changed a bit. You'll see men wearing this. Uh, sometimes it takes on a political meaning, as our own flag can and does. Sometimes it's, you know, so I, I wear it this morning basically in love for the Jordanian people. Um, welcome, William and Mary students and families. Uh, I'm the class of 08. My wife was in the class of 08. We got married, I don't know, two and a half, three months after we graduated and then went away to seminary. We were in this church while at, at William and Mary. And we were so blessed to be here. And then we went away for three years, came back a year ago, and have been so blessed to be back. Um, this is our home, and we're, we're thankful. I want to thank well, my family, a large delegation from my family's here. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, I want to thank the missions committee, who's loved us, in so many ways, the elders who have loved me and supported me even as I was ordained earlier this year. Um, in the Arab world, you know, you, I had an Arab friend ask me once, tell me about yourself. You go back at least three generations. Uh, I like that kind of thinking. I won't go back any, you know, too many generations. Um, but I grew up about a 45-minute drive just on the other side of the James River. And God... And, and, and when I grew up in a church there, God got a hold of me at a very young age and, and convinced me he wanted me in full-time outreach ministry the rest of my life. And, and God has led me to this point. Uh, our family, Sarah, my wife, our little boy, Asher, who's 15 months old, uh, we are preparing to move to Jordan, uh, we hope, by the end of the year. We are joining a team to do church planting. Our goal is church planning movements. Basically, instead of planning a string of churches, as great as that would be, and, and seeing them all grow, we want to plant churches who are immediately equipped to go and then themselves plant other churches. So training people look a lot different in that part of the world. Residential seminary for three years in some faraway place is just not going to happen. Training elders in the church to go and then become pastors, evangelists, all of that. Our... My wife is studying to be a childbirth doula and to serve the women of Jordan and the region in, the, in childbirth and educating women in childbirth, which is a great need. Uh, would you pray that God would send us in his timing? Um, basically, when we get to 90% of our budget, we'll buy our tickets and go. Uh, right now, we're at 73% of our monthly need. Um, if you'd like to get updates on us, to pray for us, our news. Every couple of weeks we send out a brief email and you can sign up for it at our table in the, in the, same, in the, yeah, the lobby. So feel free to sign up there, get a prayer card there. I'd love to talk with you afterward a little bit. We're having lunch afterwards. So if you want to come, I'll be there. Uh, yeah. So one of my teachers said, we, we serve a missionary God. This is our missions weekend. He said, the God of the Bible is a missionary God. The God of the Old Testament is a missionary God. The Christ of the Gospels is a missionary Christ. 
that the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is a missionary spirit, that the epistles, the letters written to the early churches were all written to missionary churches. And the climax in Revelation is ultimately a missionary climax. And that's the God we serve. And there's the Great Commission, right? To go and make disciples, the, the imperative, the command, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them, all of that. And what we sometimes forget, too, is then the great compassion. A few chapters before in Matthew. When did we, Lord, give you, visit you in prison? When did we take care of you when you were sick? And Jesus said, you know, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. The great compassion. And then the great commission. They go together. Sometimes we separate them. In the past, we've thought, oh, the, the, the compassion ministries, let the liberals do that. We have the gospel. We need to evangelize. Yes, we do. And we need to have compassion. You have both. And uh, hopefully we can get that right as a church here at Grace. To have the compassion of Christ and the uh, great commission of, of planting churches, of making disciples, all of that. Um, we also live in a changing world where mission has changed quite a bit. I, I mentioned, I think, earlier this summer and yesterday to a, few, a group of men uh, that this year is the 200th anniversary of the first American missionary, Adonine Judson, who set sail in 1812 from Salem Harbor to go over to Burma. And his story, you can read his biography. Uh, missions has changed a lot since then. The church has changed. We serve a global, we, we are in a global church where now as it stands today, there are more Christians in the south of the world, in Africa, for example, than there are in the north or in the western world. The church is, is changing. Theological work, biblical studies, missionaries will all now begin to come more and more from that part of the world. And praise God for that. We, we have a colonial stigma sometimes about us. I'm talking about me and my family as we go to a place like Jordan as an American, as a Westerner. Um, there's a history there. And it's sometimes hard to know what to do. I want to talk just about Gog's missionary this morning, what it means to be a missionary a little bit. David Livingston, liked to, you know, he had a, something he liked to say, that, that God only had one son and he made him a missionary. If you have one son or daughter, think about it. Um, and, you know, in our life, what can we do? So many things are happening. One idea I was once given, which I really like, you, 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 you struggle to pray maybe for the world. When you're doing laundry, how about this? Take your, your shirt, your pants, and, and look at it. See where it's made. And most likely it's in a country among the most, least reached in the world. And you can take a moment to pray for the people of that country, for workers in that country. So before you know it, you have a laundry. You thought you were doing laundry, and before you, know, before you know it, you'll have a whole prayer ministry in your laundry room. It's great. Uh, yeah. Why don't we turn, though, to, the, to, the, to Scripture, to Philippians chapter 2. Take a look at Gog's missionary, par excellence. And I, just studying this, I discovered that chapter 2, verse 1, is an arbitrary division. So why don't we start with verse 27 of the chapter 1, page 980 in the Pew Bible. Philippians chapter 1, 
starting with verse 27. We'll read through the chapter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as likes in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interest not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that, that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow soldier, excuse me, fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard, or because you heard, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for speaking by your word, and I pray that you speak also by your spirit 
as we hear. And Heavenly Father, thank you for being our Father. And thank you for sending your Son. Help us, Lord, to live like he died. To drop our interests and pick up the interests of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the church at Philippi. Um, when Paul wrote to this church, they were facing a lot of things. They were facing uh, challenges from outside and divisions inside. It reminds me a lot of the Middle Eastern church. For over a thousand years, under the thumb of a majority of people. And then, internal divisions. Let me just give you an idea. You know, in, in, in Jordan, in Syria, you have Greek Orthodox Christians who are probably the oldest there, among the oldest. Um, you have a few other small groups. I'll give you the major ones. You have Greek Catholic Christians. You have Presbyterians. Um, and then in the recent decades, you have all other denominations that have come and, and started churches. Um, in the 1840s, Americans, American missionaries from, from Philadelphia uh, left to go to that area, to Syria, and, and minister. And they, were, they got there, and they weren't allowed to reach and, and proselytize among Muslims. So they proselytized among Greek Orthodox Christians. And we are going in and entering into that legacy where there's some bad blood and conflict. You know, to the point where Greek Orthodox Christians have been known to, in Syria, report foreign missionaries to the government to be, de to be deported. And yet we want to work with the Greek Orthodox Church. We want to be side by side with them in one faith, right? Uh, we want to see renewal of the gospel brought to the Greek Orthodox Church, to the Greek Catholic Church, to these older churches started by those Presbyterian missionaries that in some cases, across the board, really, there's so many of these churches that sometimes have lost sight of the gospel. We want to see renewal. And, and to work and partner. And we're entering a place where there's great division inside the church and great pressure from the outside. And Paul writes into that kind of a context in, in Philippi where he says, live a life worthy of the gospel. That sounds good. What does that mean? Worthy of the gospel. Maybe a, another way to say it would be live a life that's suitable to the gospel. That if this is the gospel, live a life that's in line with that. That, that corresponds to the gospel. And the first reason he gives is not the reason I would give. If I were asked, why should you live worthy, to the, worthy of the gospel? I would think of very pious spiritual reasons. Uh, inward reasons, maybe. Personal reasons. My relationship with God. All of that. First reason Paul gives is, so that, this is verse 27, chapter 1. So that whether I come and see you or are an absent, I hear of that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind. He says that why? So that you'll be unified. So that you'll be a community. I, 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 fascinating that in order to live worthy of the gospel, that community is necessary. That blows my Western individualism a little bit. Uh, and then, of course, the, the issue, uh, the, the topic of community as witness comes up. Sometimes that's the most powerful witness. And even in our country, in a postmodern place of skeptics where truth is questioned, when they come, when, when a skeptic sees us, you, here, you know, in a community and unified, that's a powerful story and, and testament. We just need to live according to the gospel. So how? And that answer comes in chapter 2. The big idea is basically to live as Jesus died. That's my title this morning. Live as Jesus died. 
Uh, how? To, to drop your interests and pick up the interests of others. To count others as more significant than yourself. That it's about others, not you. Thinking that way. Acting that way. Um, just to consider others better than yourself. That's the big idea. And then we have the best model for it. And that's that, that section that's so beautiful, jam-packed with theology. I mean, it's, it's sometimes called a hymn. Maybe it was sung in the early church. We don't know. Verse 4, uh, who, talking about you know, the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I'll read the rest later. They just, this is God's missionary. This is God's missionary par excellence, where he is our model. He's the ultimate model for one who's laid down his rights. This is the essence of the gospel. And even though it's filled with theology, it's theology with a purpose. Um, let me read a little bit further. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Um, that's the humiliation side of it. Um, where he was humiliated and brought low, became a servant. He didn't consider equality with God something he had to grasp, something he had to hold on to. He could let it go. He could set it aside and, and become humble as a servant, even though he had all the status and rights and privileges in the world, it was beyond the world, as a son of God divine. Uh, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, we think we're so important, you know? We... We have such status. Maybe I should lighten things up with a little story. I don't know. Um, there was a story of a, of a movie star and his wife who decided to go on vacation and uh, to get away from, from all the, the, the places where they thought they'd be recognized. They decided to go up in, in northern New Hampshire, few people around, beautiful, you know, bed and breakfast, and then decided to go out to the small local theater to see a movie that night. Figured no one would recognize him there. They got everything, you know, their tickets, popcorn, stepped into the movie theater, and as soon as they walked in to this dark theater, everyone erupted in, in applause. And they couldn't, they just, they were embarrassed. They sat down in a seat in the back and just sat there, and the movie started. And this, this man couldn't stand to, to know how people recognized him. He wanted to know how did they get recognized. So he leaned over to the guy next to him in the dark theater and said, Hey, how did, how did you guys even see us or recognize who I was? And the man said, oh, they just said that we were waiting for one other family to come in before they start the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we, we think very highly of ourselves. Uh, Jesus is the exact opposite of our natural inclinations in humbling himself. And then the gospel message is summarized at the bottom. Basically in the phrase, Jesus is Lord. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. It's like Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Or when Paul said to the Corinthians that no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. That's his way of summarizing the gospel. If I were summarizing the gospel, I don't know. Maybe I'd whip out the four spiritual laws or something. 
I'd find another way, but Jesus is Lord. That, that's true, of course, but it's not maybe my way of summarizing the gospel. So I need to change. Um, Jesus is Lord is a packed statement. And a passage in Isaiah is being applied to Jesus here. Let me just read it. Isaiah 45, this one little chunk of it. Uh, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. This is the Lord speaking. For I am God and there is no other. I myself have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Jesus' Lord means that the God who created the heavens and the earth, that the God who spoke to Abraham, who blessed Isaac and Jacob and all of Jacob's sons, who rescued Egypt out of slavery in Egypt, who gave kings and prophets and exiled them, but then restored them and brought them back into the land. That Lord is Jesus. That stands in the face of every Jewish monotheist in Paul's day and in ours. And Jesus has revealed him to us. That's what was there in the meaning originally. That's what would have offended maybe some. And another dimension, Jesus is Lord, that being the gospel, it's over and against any other Lord, which at the time Caesar was very fond of calling himself both Lord and Soter, Savior in Greek. And this is a potentially radical, or it is a radical, a potentially uh, subversive political statement. Paul wasn't interested in violently overthrowing the Roman government. But it is a, a subversive statement because the ultimate Lord is Jesus and not the powers that have rescued your city or town and brought civilization to the city of Philippi and the ancient Roman Empire. No, it's the Lord Jesus who died and then rose again. That's the gospel that's upside down, yeah, from what we'd normally think. is Jesus is Lord over and against Caesar. Jesus is the Lord Yahweh. And... Uh, that's the gospel. That's, that's our story, too. It's our narrative. This is our history. Paul is just saying, look, live, live in light of your story. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your narrative. Live a life worthy of it, of the gospel, fitting to it. How? Laying down your interests, picking up others. Bonhoeffer was fond of calling Jesus that man for others. I'm reading his biography now, Bonhoeffer being a great theologian and pastor and many other things. If we do this, it's going to involve a lot of things. Um, there's a pastor from Nairobi Chapel, Oscar Murillo, who's shared a little bit about this, and I'm not sure where my thoughts end and his begin, but just share a few of them with you. It's going to include a, a move from pride to humility. To look like Jesus here means leaving our connections to greatness. Uh, leaving behind our learning, our degrees, our experiences, our, not, not, uh, you know, our resources. Setting those aside, basically. Realizing that God does the work. It's a total change in our attitude. It is listening to, well, as a missionary, it's, it's listening to local wisdom. It's using local knowledge and learning, serving. It's keeping quiet so that the poor can speak. We go and, and have all the answers, maybe, or we, we do the speaking. It's, being, it's shutting up so that the poor can, can speak, to have a meaningful relationship, to basically minister from below, up. We're very good at ministering from above. 
as the benefactor to minister from below. It's, it, to, to do what Jesus did is basically trading power for powerlessness. I shared with the men yesterday morning how Jesus entered our world through the most vulnerable door. That God, when God came in the flesh, he became an infant in a, in a poor peasant family. Uh, too poor to offer the standard sacrifice of the temple of a lamb. Instead, they had to offer two birds. And born, and you know, in, in any uh, less developed country, in any humanitarian crisis, those who are most vulnerable and affected are especially infants, then children, and then mothers, women. And Jesus entered our world through that door of powerlessness. He set it aside, made himself nothing. He set aside his connection to powers, to his father, and then the legions of angels set it aside. He realized that his mission depended on his father's power, and, and, and that was it. That our mission depends on, on God's power alone. If we find ourselves in networks of power and influence, so be it. But don't seek it for the sake of the gospel, or, or God doesn't need that. If God has placed you there, fine. Don't seek or put yourself in a position for it. And Jesus dropped honor and set his honor aside. You know, men joked with him when Jesus talked about Abraham and all, and, and they, they, the Pharisees said, you know, we're sons of Abraham. We are not illegitimate children. Poking fun at Jesus, whose parenthood was a bit questionable of that young virgin who gave birth. Yeah, okay. Um, he left his honor to come in the way he did. And we are very powerful people. Uh, we're very connected. We have educations. We have resources, even the poorest among us. Uh, and the poor have nothing but to listen to us, right? They're out of fear of losing our benevolence. We've got to really th rethink our whole approach. Uh, it, this terrifies me. And, and gives me a burden to examine everything we do when we're in Jordan. How do we minister from below? How do we, as an American, coming under all of these colonial legacies, uh, how do I be like Jesus? Uh, this is our model. John's great commission in the John's Gospel, unlike the others, sounds a little different. He says, as, uh, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. The same way the Father sent the Son, Jesus, that's the way he sends you. So before we get too discouraged, uh, let's think about the examples that Paul gives. He keeps on giving some more examples. Jesus is the model, the missionary par excellence. But we're told to live as he died, and he gives himself as an example. Paul says, you know, at the end of this next section, verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, pouring myself out for you. I'm, I'm glad, basically, that he gave himself up for the, the church in Philippi. I mean, he called him my beloved. He, he loved them so much. He uses this great language, the ones I love. He, in Galatians, said that he, he birthed that church. He was in childbirth pains, as it were, in giving birth to the church. He loved it that much. It was his uh, baby. And then he gives Timothy as an example. Timothy, who, pretty obvious, right? For I have no one like him, verse 20, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. There it is, written out for you. For, he looks like Jesus. He is dropping his interests and taking up the interests of others. And then this last guy, who is he? Epaphroditus. You don't read about him anywhere else. He, his name is pretty hard to pronounce. 
Um, but Epaphroditus, apparently the church in Philippi had sent him to help Paul. And I believe it seems that, that he helped him more than just gospel ministry, but also in compassion ministry, of, of bringing a gift for Paul, of, of helping Paul's physical needs, serving alongside him. The great compassion there. And then, of course, he got sick and almost died. And what is Epaphroditus' concern? He was, he was upset because he knew that his, his brothers and sisters in Philippi heard that he was sick. He knew they were distressed, so he was distressed. I mean, he's the example. You know, it's easy maybe to see how Paul, an apostle, could live like Jesus. He had the Spirit of God on him in such a way that just, he's an apostle. Or maybe we might be tempted to think that, that Timothy, with his upraising, uh, upbringing in, in a Jewish home and, and being mentored by Paul, of course he could look like Jesus. But who's this Epaphroditus guy? Who is he? And, and You know, it's so clear here. When Paul wrote these words, he wrote... That Jesus came to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? When he wrote that, Jesus came to the point of death. Then later at the end of this chapter, when he said, Epaphroditus, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Paul penned the same words, for he nearly died. In the Greek, it's the same phrase. You could translate this, for he came to the point of death for the work of Christ. Epaphroditus did. Written large. It's, 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 he looks like Jesus. He's just like the divine Son of God, who was humiliated and came as, as a missionary. Um, I think, as one of my teachers said, I don't think God has a map in heaven of all of his missionaries. Maybe he does. But if he did, that it would look, well, there would be spots on the map that are very different places than we might expect. If God had a map of his, his missionaries around the world, there would be a mark in an elementary school classroom at the teacher's desk. Or there'd be a, a label in the faculty offices here at the college. His missionaries. It'd be in a lawyer's office. It'd be in a cubicle. It'd be in the bedroom with a mother who nurses her, her infant. There'd be all these docks and places we never expect of people who look like Jesus, who are like Epaphroditus, lay down their own interests and live like he died as God's missionary. What interests do we have that we can lay down? What legitimate rights? I'm not talking, I'm talking about things that we, we deserve. Jesus was legitimately the divine Son of God, and yet he put it aside. What legitimate rights do we have that we can put aside for the sake of others, for the sake of the unity of here, our church? Maybe we can lay aside our status, our desire for recognition, but even our desire for gratitude, being thanked for something, for the sake of others, for the sake of unity. You deserve thanks, yes, but set that aside. Our rights to our property, our income, freely loaning out our possessions, laying aside our rights. It's certainly not helping other people that you know are going to return the favor. I think this, well, let me just say, God bless the man who counts his wife more significant than himself. Or the wife who does that to her husband. God bless the man who considers his pastor as greater and more significant than himself, more worthy of love and compassion rather than the other way around. Um, God bless the child that counts his parents as more significant than himself. God bless the, the student who sets aside her assignment for the sake of others, taking the, 
the lower grade or whatever may come. This could transform a family. It would transform a city, a church. And, you know, you shine as lights in the world in a crooked and twisted generation. It would transform the world when you do this stuff, when you look like Jesus. That's what Paul said. That's the heartbeat of the missionary, to live as Jesus died. This is what's capable of bridging the gap into a crooked and twisted generation, into the Arab world, into the whole world, to drop your interests, to let them go, take up the interests of those around you. It will look beautiful. You'll look like Jesus. Jesus.